Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. I just got back, ladies and gentlemen, from the University of South Carolina, just down the road from where I live, about 90 minutes. In fact, all three of my sons went there. They're all Gamecocks, and we had, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist there on Thursday night. And we had some really good questions. In fact, you can watch these questions, this Q&A that we always have at the end of the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation. If you go to either our website or you go to our Facebook page, just find the video. The entire stream is up there. And uh, two of the questions were extremely, well, one wasn't a question. It was something that made my night. It was a man who stood up at the at the mic and said, my name is Yuri. And I said, are you from Russia? He said, no, I'm from Ukraine. And I had just gotten done talking about what an impact event was. If you've ever seen the presentation, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. An impact event is an event that occurs in your life that is so dramatic that it can change your perspective 180 degrees. And I just explained how obviously a resurrection would have been, been an impact event to the, the apostles. They would have remembered everything Jesus said and did to the day they died and it turned their complete worldview upside down. Uh, well, not completely upside down. I mean, they still believed in God and all that, but Jesus was now God, and they abandoned so many of their of their long-term beliefs that they had for over a millennium, and they adopted new beliefs. And it was an impact event that really created uh, an explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem that to this day is still the biggest movement of all time when you think about it there's uh more christians in the world than any other world religion and it started with just 12 people and a savior in any event i just gotten done explaining what an impact event was and he stood up at the microphone this gentleman from russia and he said i lived for or i came out of a country the soviet union that had 70 years of atheism and they crammed that 70 years of atheism into our heads. And nine years ago, this month, he said someone gave him a copy of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And it was an impact event in his life, and he subsequently, subsequently became a Christian. And that just made my night when somebody says that your book helped, helped me become a Christian, especially a man who came out of atheism. Uh, so thanks to Yuri for coming and saying that. And he said, I just wanted to say that and shake your hand. So he did. Wonderful, wonderful man. Got some pictures and all that. Uh, and then the very next man after him was a man by the name of Abdullah. And I said, are you from Ukraine? <laughs> he said, no, I'm from Saudi Arabia. In any event, we went on to talk about Islam. And again, you can see the entire exchange by going to the video online. And he was trying to say... Um, that I I mentioned that many Muslims will die for their faith, and he was saying, well, why do you, where do you think Muslims get that from? 
And I said, well, they get it from Surah 9 and Surah 8. Surah 9 says basically that you ought to ambush unbelievers and you ought to slay the idolaters wherever you find them. And Surah 8 says, uh, strike the heads off the infidels. And he tried to say, well, that's just a political outcome. That's not really Islam. And I said, well, I wish your viewpoint about Islam was true. And I wish more Muslims would take it. Because he went on to try and say that those verses were dealing with just the people in Mecca, you know, in 630 or so AD. And it didn't apply to anybody else. Uh, Unfortunately, much of Islam would disagree with him. Now, I wish his interpretation was correct, but many Muslims don't agree with him, obviously. We've had jihad for 1,400 years. It didn't start on 9-11, friends. It's, it's been around a very long time. And so we had a nice exchange, which, again, you can watch there uh, on the video. And for those of you that haven't seen the presentation, every time we go to a college campus, we stream the event which you can watch live, and then you can watch it after it's been posted on our Facebook page or on our crossexamined.org website. And if you've seen the presentation before, okay, fast forward, just go to the Q&A, because the Q&A is always different and it's always interesting. And by the way, those Q&As, we often cut up into individual questions and answers and send them out in emails once a week. So if you want to be a part of our email list, go to crossexamine.org and uh, click on subscribe, and you'll get one email from us a, a week with a short video, a short Q&A video. And these people find very effective. Why? Because, look, you can send somebody a 40-minute video. They're not going to watch it. You send them a four-minute Q&A video, they will watch it. So sign up for our email, and we'll send you one video a week, normally from a college campus question, a Q&A interaction. And these are normally very short, so people will watch them. All right, what's our topic for today? Let me ask you guys a question. Is the Bible all you need? Does all truth we know come from the Bible? Is that true? That all truth we know comes from the Bible? Is the Bible all you need really to be a Christian? Do you need anything else? I got a letter I say a letter, it's an email. Our email address, hello at crossexamine.org. From a man, I'm not going to give you his name, but I'm just going to read it, at least part, part of it. He said, I want to preface this email with thankfulness and humility. The ministry of Cross-Examine has helped me build a strong foundation of logic and understanding. You, in particular, have been inf- an influential figure to me through your I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist book and lectures, helping me shape rational arguments for the nature of reality and the reliability of the Bible. With that said, I find... You bring up a particular topic during your podcast and upload to YouTube every now and then. Let me stop right here. These podcasts that you're listening to, well, right now, if you're listening live on the radio, you're hearing it now, but it's podcasted. So it's on iTunes. It's on our crossexamined.org official podcast app uh, and uh, website. Uh, Website. Uh, That's not right. (laughs) Well, it is on the website, but... In other words, there's many places you can get the podcast. You can get it from the official iTunes podcast uh, location on iTunes. You can get it off of our website, and you can also find it on YouTube. So that's what he's saying. We put it up in a lot of different places. And by the way, thank you for putting a positive review of this podcast on the iTunes site because it really helps move it up the charts. That's what people tell me anyway, so continue to do that. Anyway, this gentleman says... 
I find these podcasts on YouTube every now and then, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about considering the title of the email. Here's the title of his email. Flat Earth slash Biblical Cosmology. And he goes on to say, each and every time I hear you reference this topic, it is with disdain and quite honestly ignorance. As someone who has objectively looked at the topic for for the better half of four years, I can say with certainty that your understanding of the concept isn't fully matured. My intention is not to bash you, but to shed light into the topic, lest you continue to mock the word of God unknowingly, and hence my strong speech and position on the topic. And he goes on to, of course, quote 2 Timothy 3, that all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, and correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And then he goes on to list 200 scriptures that supposedly show that he's right about his view of cosmology. And what is his view of cosmology? Well, that the earth is flat. Now, don't tune out, ladies and gentlemen. This is not going to be about a, the flat earth uh, show. This is going to be about how to interpret the Bible properly show. Flat earth is just one topic we'll use to illustrate how to interpret the Bible accurately. And let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard a series by a pastor on how to interpret the Bible? I have never heard that. Not from the pulpit. Maybe some pastors teach that online, or maybe they teach it in a Sunday school group or a small group. I've never, ever heard any pastor do a series on how to interpret the Bible. So I, I don't blame this gentleman for writing in and, and thinking that his interpretation is the Bible, uh, of the Bible is correct if he's never heard anybody give a series on how to interpret the Bible. We're actually doing that on our TV show right now. But more on that after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, back in two. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examine podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. How do you interpret the Bible, ladies and gentlemen? What is the correct method by which you interpret the Bible? Have you ever heard of the Dake Annotated Reference Bible? Uh, Finnis J. Dake was a pastor who has his own Bible, or had his own Bible, called the Dake Annotated Reference Bible. And this gentleman lived in the last century, lived from uh, 1902 to 1987, and basically, he tried to say that God has a physical body, because that's what the scriptures say. God has a personal spirit body. And he, he, he quotes a whole number of scriptures. He has, the body has shape. It has form. It has image. And see, we're made in the, like, in, in the image of God, so God must have an image. And he has, he has bodily parts, such as back parts, for example. Like if you look in Exodus uh, 33, when Moses says, show me who you are, God. And God says, I'll show you my back. So, you know, God must have a back. He must have a heart. He must have hands and fingers because the Psalms talk about this. He must have a mouth. He has lips and a tongue. He has feet. He has eyes, ears, wings. He has all these things, according to Mr. Dake. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. In fact, let's just take one of those I just mentioned, body parts. According to uh, Dake, God actually has wings. Why? Because Ruth 2.12 says, 
The Lord repay your work and full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Psalm 17, 8 says, keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36, 7 says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. Psalm 57, 1 says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. Psalm 61, 4 says, I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Psalm 91, 4 says, he shall cover you with his feathers and under his wings you shall take refuge. Now, what could be clearer than that, ladies and gentlemen? It's quite obvious that Mr. Dake here is correct. God must have wings and feathers because that's what the Bible says. Now, some of you are rolling your eyes right now going, come on, Frank. You know that that's metaphor. Well, how do you know it's metaphor? Well, because we know God is spirit. Why? Well, because John 4.24 says God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what Jesus said to the lady at the well. So, obviously God is spirit. Well, time out, ladies and gentlemen. How do you know the metaphor is not John 4.24? How do you know it's... It's not literal that God has wings and feathers. And when you say God is spirit, that's just a metaphor. In other words, there's got to be something outside the Bible that you bring to the Bible in order to differentiate which is the literal and which is the metaphor. Otherwise, you'd have a contradiction. Because God can't both be immaterial, spirit, and at the same time be physical and have wings and feathers and all those other body parts I mentioned earlier. So is the Bible all we need? I know some of you are going, well, what, Frank, what about sola scriptura? What does sola scriptura mean? It means that the scripture alone is what we need for faith and practice. So doesn't sola scriptura kind of rule out anything outside the Bible? No, sola scriptura doesn't mean that you get all your truth from the Bible. It means you get your theology primarily from the Bible and not from church traditions, church councils, popes. You see, Sola Scriptura came out of the Reformation where the Roman Catholic Church at the time was saying that, well, it's not just the Scripture you look to. You also look to the church traditions. You look to the church fathers. You look to what the popes and the councils say. And so it doesn't mean you get all your truth from the Bible. It means that your authority is the Bible rather than church councils popes, traditions, these kind of things. In fact, sola scriptura actually isn't even in the Bible. There's there's no place it says that the Bible alone. In fact, Paul even says in Romans chapter 2, the Gentiles are not of the law of the law, what? Written on their hearts. Oh, there's something outside the Bible that people know. In fact, you can identify metaphor pretty easily, but you're still making a philosophical judgment when you do that. For example, when Jesus says, I am the door, you don't think he has a doorknob and hinges. 
right? You realize that's a metaphor. But you're bringing outside references or outside assumptions to the Bible in order to interpret the Bible. And that's true anytime you try and investigate or interpret any book, much less the Bible. In fact, let me ask you a question. What do you need to know before you can read a book? I mean, suppose you, 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 you have a baby, right? Before the baby grows up to a point where the baby can read a book, what does the child need to learn first? Well, the child needs to learn the alphabet first, right? Does the Bible teach you the alphabet? No, the Bible uses the alphabet, okay? Uh, you have to learn words, and you have to learn how those words apply to things in reality. Does the Bible use words? Yes. But the Bible assumes that you know what words mean and how they apply to things in reality. Like if I say the word car, you know what a car is. There's a sort of a nature of a car. There's all different kinds of cars, but you generally know what a car is. If I say tree, you know what a tree is. Now, there's many different kinds of trees, but you know the nature of treeness. If I say dog or human, you know there are many different types of dogs and many different kinds of humans, but you know there are, those are two different things. There are dogs and there are humans, and words apply to these things. You'd also have to teach the young child grammar before the, indiv- before the child could learn how to read the Bible. And language. You would have to teach the child language. You would have to in- ensure that the, the child knew logic as well. Now, logic is self-evident, but sometimes you can be uh, illogical if you don't think carefully enough. These are all things you have to bring to the Bible in order to understand the Bible. And it's not just those things. Many others. In fact, um, many uh, years ago, I had a little bit of an email debate with a Calvinist. I'm not going to tell you his name. There's no sense getting into personalities. But he disagreed over, over my interpretation of a particular passage. And he said, um, you're using philosophy to interpret the Bible. Can't do that. And he said, I'm just using the historical grammatical method to understand what the Bible means. So I asked him, where is the historical grammatical method taught in the Bible? And if it was taught in the Bible... How could you get at it without assuming it first? Now, he wouldn't answer the question. Why? Because he was bringing his own philosophy to the text to understand the text. While it's true, you can use wrong philosophy and wrong thinking to interpret the scriptures. It's not true that you can use no philosophy or no thinking to interpret the scriptures. Everybody uses philosophical principles to interpret any book, including the Bible. In fact, how would you get the principles of interpretation out of the Bible without having the principles of interpretation to begin with? Let me, let me use an analogy here. In the old days, before we had keyless entry, you could lock your keys in the car, right? Now you really can't if you got a newer car because it's got a keyless entry. You leave your key in there. It's not going to lock the door. But in the old days when you didn't have the keyless entry, you could lock your keys in the door. Or, or sorry, in, in the car. 
Now, how do you get your keys out of the car? Well, just get your keys and open. No, the keys are in the car. You you need your keys outside the car in order to get the keys outside of the car. So you got to break into the car somehow, right? You got to have a locksmith come out or use the old hanger method, right, to get to unlock the door. All right. Well, the same thing is kind of true when it comes to interpreting a book. You can't. Um, you would need principles of interpretation to interpret the book in order to understand what it says. You couldn't get those principles inside the book, otherwise. It would be like having your keys locked in your car. You would need those principles to extract anything from the book. In other words, we're bringing outside knowledge to the Bible in order to understand it. It's unavoidable. And you say, well, Frank, that's, isn't the Bible our authority? Well, generally it is, yes. But the Bible's not the only book God, God has written. The Bible, in fact, the God, God has written two books. He's written the book of nature, and he's written the book called the Bible. Now, he's written it through people, and it's dually authored, understand. We're not going to get into the theories of, of inspiration today. I'm just pointing out that there are two rev- types of revelation, natural revelation and special revelation, sometimes called general revelation and special revelation. Everybody has general revelation. Everybody has things like logic. Everybody has things like nature. Everybody knows there's moral truths out there. These are part of God's general or, or natural revelation. But God's special revelation is, is what we call the Bible. And in order to understand special revelation, you need general revelation, which includes things like logic, reason, grammar, language. Well, we, of course, create languages, but we have the capacity to create, create languages because we have an ability to reason. That's general revelation. You need those things in order to understand special revelation. General revelation are truths that are knowable about God and creation by virtue of our human reason because we're created in the image of God. So we can, we can know that there's, if there's a creation, there must be a creator. We know if there's design in the universe, there must be a designer. We know if there's a moral law written on our hearts, there must be a moral law giver. That's all general revelation. But special revelation are truths that are known only because God has specifically revealed them by his Holy Spirit, through the prophets, through the apostles, and ultimately through his Son. Things like the Trinity. You're not going to reason to the Trinity. The Trinity's reasonable, but you're not going to come up with it on your own. The Gospel. The idea that God comes to earth and dies and after living a perfect life and, and, and takes our punishment on himself and by trusting in him you can have your sins forgiven and be given his righteousness. You're not going to learn that through philosophy. It's philosophically consistent, but you're not going to learn it through general revelation. You need special revelation. And so how do these two relate? We're going to talk about it in more depth after the break so we can learn how to properly interpret the Bible. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
We don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Ladies and gentlemen, what if you could learn about the American Revolution and the founding of America from the world's greatest expert on George Washington? That'd be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? What if you could learn about general relativity from the world's leading expert on Albert Einstein? That would be cool. What if you could learn about finance from the world's best expert on investing? Maybe someone like Warren Buffett. Yeah, I'd take that course, wouldn't you? Well, what if you could learn about the most important fact in life itself from the world's best expert on it. What's the most important fact about life? The resurrection. Yeah, because if the resurrection occurred, Christianity's true. And everybody's destiny is determined by how you respond to the resurrection. Well, you actually can learn about the most important fact in life itself, the resurrection from the world's best expert on it, Dr. Gary Habermas, because starting this week... Gary is going to teach his resurrection course, and you can be a part of it if you go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. Um, It starts this week. Gary is going to be live on video with you, Zoom video, on at least three occasions to answer your questions. You might not get this opportunity again to learn from the best expert in the world. He's, he's, He's known to be the best man in the world, the best scholar in the world on the resurrection. In fact, his magnum opus, he's is approaching five thousand pages right now. I mean, that's how much this guy knows about the resurrection, and he's been studying it for over forty years. Gary is in his late sixties now. I don't know how many more times he's going to teach this. So, if you want to be a part of learning about the greatest, most important fact in human history to everyone, now's your opportunity. But you got to take the premium version if you want to interact with Gary personally. We only have so many seats we can provide for this class because we want you to have ample opportunity to ask him questions. So sign up now if you want to be a part of it. You can take the basic course anytime you want, but you don't get to interact live with Gary. If you want to interact, interact live with Gary and uh, Michael Patton, another scholar in this field, then you need to sign up for the premium version, and you need to go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there. also want to point out that CIA, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, we do every August, is coming to the Big Apple. Forget about it. It's unbelievable. Anyway, we're going to be in New York at the Christian Cultural Center right there in Brooklyn, and uh, we're adding David Wood to the faculty this year. David Wood is an expert on Islam, and he's built up an amazing YouTube following. He's debated many Muslims and atheists, by the way. Uh, and also, you'll have Greg Kokel there. I'll be there, of course. Uh, you'll have Richard Howe. You'll have Brett Kunkel. Uh, you'll have Elisa Childers. You'll have Jorge Gill, Ray Siervo, 
Um, who am I leaving out? I don't know. But you, the whole faculty is going to be there, and you're going to be able to learn from some of the best apologists in the world. So you can not only present why the Christian worldview is true, but answer questions as well. So check it out. Sign up soon. Uh, we can only take maybe 60 people in this, and you hang out with us for the entire three days so you can learn and ask any of these folks any questions you want on how to advance your ministry forward and how to improve your presentation skills. So sign up soon. That's the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy. Today we're talking about, by the way, uh, that's August 8 to 10, by the way. Uh, but the, by the way, I know I notice I say by the way a lot. I've just noticed I say by the way a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I'm changing subjects. I say by the way. All right. By the way, um, the what was I talking about? I lost my train of thought. I hate that. Well, today we're talking about the the Bible. Is the Bible all you need to be a Christian? And I know when I say the answer is no, some of you are going to be upset with me, but I don't think you're thinking it through enough. Well, first of all, let me point out that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written. You can be a Christian without even having the Bible. Now, I don't recommend it. I'm just saying that it's possible. There were Christians before there was a New Testament. Why? Well, because Christianity is based on an event. It's not based on a book. The event is the resurrection. Now, it's true that Jesus is our authority, and Jesus inspired the writers to write down what we needed to know about it, but... Technically, you can be a Christian without ever understanding the Bible or even having the Bible. Some people get saved by just hearing the gospel, and that's it. But that's not a full, robust Christian life. You want to become more like Jesus, and for that, you need the Scriptures. But my point here is, is that in order to understand the Scriptures, you need to bring a lot to the table in order to understand them. Let me just give you a few of the things. I've mentioned some of them already, but here's just a few of them. You need to know that your senses are reliable. That's called realism. Because you get information from your senses. Without information from your senses, you couldn't even read the Bible, obviously, or, or hear it. Secondly, you need to understand logic. Without logic, again, you couldn't understand what the Bible was saying and you couldn't reason. These things are obviously assumed by the Bible writers. They're not taught by the Bible writers. Thirdly, you need to understand that cause and effect is consistent throughout history. Why would you need to understand that? Because if it wasn't, if things could pop into existence without a cause, then maybe Jesus rose from the dead without God. Then how would we know he was from God? Or the universe could pop into existence without a cause, then how would we even know that God created the universe? Cause and effect needs to be consistent. Or these documents that we have, how do we know they're written by eyewitnesses? Maybe documents wrote themselves if cause and effect was violated. And these documents aren't really true. They're just fables. I mean, you have to assume that cause and effect is consistent throughout history. Uh, by the way, what, what we're doing here, uh, let me back up for a second. What we're doing here is something that theologians call prolegomena. Prolegomena. It means what you're doing before you do theology. And unfortunately, few seminaries teach this. Our seminary does, Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu, it's the first thing you do when you do what's known as systematic theology. You learn what you need to learn before you even look at the Bible, because in order to look at the Bible and understand it, you need these things. You need to know your senses are reliable. You need to know logic. You need to know cause and effect is consistent throughout history. You need to know these things. Now, some of this is such common sense, you don't even think about it. But 
if you don't think about it enough, you can fall into error, like what I believe the writer of the email is that I went over earlier. He's trying to tell me that the earth is flat because the Bible says it's flat, at least according to his interpretation. He's making an error, which I'll get to here in a few minutes. Also, what else do you need to know? You need to know that the definition of words, you know, what they are, and you need to know how those words apply to things in reality. Like the word God. What does the word God mean? The Bible doesn't teach you what the word God means. I mean, it gives you the attributes of God. Don't get me wrong. But it starts out by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, okay. What does the word God mean? You need to have some idea of what God means to even understand what the first verse of the Bible means. Right? You need, you need to understand logic. I already mentioned that. You need to understand language and grammar. I already mentioned that as well. You need to understand literary style. And here's where I think our friend who wrote me the email is going wrong. Literary style. The Psalms are different from, say, chronicles. Poetry is different from history. Parables are different from narrative. Prophecy is different from the epistles. These are different literary styles or genres, and they will help you discover the proper way to interpret a particular passage in the Bible, if you know these literary genres and styles. You need to know certain moral principles in order to understand the Bible. Righteousness, sin, justice, love, gratitude. In fact, think about how many times in the Old Testament God says to the Israelites, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one that you ought to be grateful to. Notice it doesn't teach you that you ought to be grateful. It doesn't teach you gratitude. It just assumes that you know that if someone does something nice for you, you ought to be grateful about that. This is just part of the natural law. It's part of the first book God has written. Everybody already knows that you ought to be grateful to people who help you or God who helps you. It's not taught. It's just assumed because it's been written on your hearts by God. It's part of general revelation. You need to know historical context to understand what some things mean in the Bible. I mean, without historical context, you wouldn't be able to discover what certain passages in the Bible mean. The famous one I've talked about many times in this show before is Jeremiah 29.11. People quote that like it applies to them. No, Jeremiah 29.11 about, oh, the plans I have for you and all that, plans to prosper you. That doesn't apply to Christians today. That applied to the people who were exiled in Babylon 2,600 years ago under Nebuchadnezzar. It's a letter written to those exiles. It doesn't have anything to do with us today other than to tell us how God treated his people in the Old Testament. You need to know, histori- you need to know historical context to understand that. And you also have, the, uh, have to have the ability to follow an argument, sustain thought, which is a problem in our country today because we are so distracted by social media and iPhones and iPads and, and computers and Snapchat and Instagram and all these things that prevent us from really thinking through an argument with sustained thought. So this is all knowledge you need before you even get to the Bible. This is all called prolegomena. And I've never, ever in my life heard a pastor talk about this. Now, 
some pastors may say, well, it's too heady a topic to talk about on a Sunday morning. Well, I kind of tend to disagree. I think you ought to be able to teach. And look, I don't want to hammer pastors here. Pastors have the hardest, the second hardest job in, in American Christianity. The hardest job is pastor's wife, okay? But anyway, let me just encourage you that you ought to be teaching your people how to understand the Bible, not at a seminary level, don't get me wrong, but at a general level. And when we come back from the break, I'll give you a, an easy way of doing this. But they ought to be able to understand the Bible on, for themselves, and they just need a little bit of help doing it. They can't rely on you, the pastor, to do all this for them all the time. You and the other church uh, staff are supposed to equip the saints to do ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. You can't do all the ministry yourself. I can't do all the ministry myself. We're supposed to equip others to do ministry. And one of the ways we can do that is to teach them how to interpret, how to interpret the Bible properly. So how do you do that? And how do you avoid the error that the gentleman who wrote me this email telling me the earth was flat, how do you avoid that error? Well, we're going to talk about it when we come back from the break. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. And uh, don't forget, next Monday, the 18th of March, we'll be at the University of Memphis in Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you very much. Uh, and anyone can come check out our website, crossexamined.org. For more back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. You know, I've mentioned earlier our TV program. For those of you that don't have our TV program, the way you get it is you get DirecTV. We're on channel 378. If you don't have DirecTV, it's on Roku, R-O-K-U. It's on the NRB TV network, NRB, stands for National Religious Broadcasters. It's on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern and 1 a.m. Eastern if you're an insomniac, you know, really Thursday morning. It's also uh, streamed on our app. It's streamed on our website. The, cross, the crossexamine.org website, and if you, you miss, miss it all there, you can get the DVDs on our website. Just go to our website, crossexamine.org, click on store. You can find them there. So uh, we're going through an entire 10-part series, How to Interpret the Bible. We're not going through it right now, but we will be shortly on the TV program, so uh, you can uh, get a lot more depth than what we can talk about here on the radio program. But one thing that I try and uh, uh, show people how to do is how to interpret a passage in the Bible by one simple acronym. The acronym is STOP, S-T-O-P, S-T-O-P. In other words, when you come to a passage in the Bible, you need to stop and you need to figure out what the situation is, what type of literature is it, who is the object of the passage, and is this passage prescriptive? or just descriptive. Now, what do I mean by that? That's stop, S-T-O-P. First of all, let me point out there are no verses in the Bible. There are no verses in the Bible. The passages, the verse, chapter and verse distinctions were put in about 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is a good thing. It's good to be able to navigate the text. You know, it'd be very difficult to go to uh, a, a verse in, in Isaiah for example, without knowing where, without the chapter and verse divisions, uh, because it's such a long book. So 
the chapter and verses are there to help us navigate the text. The problem is we tend to think that they're individual nuggets of truth that we can take out of their context and apply any, any way we want. No, you can't do that. And there's so many examples of people doing that. Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of them. Judge not is another one. And uh, in Matthew 7, 1, they don't read the rest of the, pa- rest of the passage where it says, judge not lest you be judged. By the same standard you judge others, you'll be judged by that standard. So before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye, you hypocrite, take the log out of your own eye first. Jesus isn't telling us not to judge. He's telling us how to judge. Don't judge hypocritically. He's telling us to take the speck out of our brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. So the, 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 the problem here is, is that there are no verses in the Bible, and that's why you need to get the context, and that's what stop will help you do. You need to read around the passage and figure out what is the situation. What's going on here? Where is this in the Bible? Is it Old Testament, New Testament? Um, who's, this, who, who, who's this about? What's going on here at the time? What kind, of, what kind of literature is this? That's the T, the type. Is this prophecy? Is this parable? Is this narrative? Is this history? Is this law? What is this? Is this a gospel? Is this, is this, is this a letter? You need to know the type in order to be able to interpret it properly. Then the O is for object. Who is the object of the passage? Is the object of the passage say, ancient Israel, or an individual in a church, a New Testament church, or is it everyone, us? Now, obviously, in Jeremiah 29, 11, the object is, or the object of the passage, are the exiles that went off to Babylon. That, that's the object. So when you get to the next letter, P, you ask yourself, Is this a prescription or a description? Well, for us, it's a description. It's just describing what God was going to do with the exiles after 70 years. By the way, that's another people don't recognize about that passage. The promise to prosper you is something that's going to happen 70 years from now. Prosper who? Prosper the the exiles, not us today. But if you want to apply it to you today, you got to wait 70 years. Okay, so it's a description about what happened 2,600 years ago. It's not a prescription for us today. So if you stop and you figure out the situation, you figure out the type of literature, you figure out the object of the passage, and you figure out whether this is prescriptive or descriptive, about 90% of what you need to know in order to interpret, interpret the passage properly, you'll already know, maybe 95%. Now, it's not going to give you the nuances of, the, of the, the original languages or any of those things, but it's a really good way to try and figure out what a passage means. Okay? Now, let's go to a passage that this gentleman who wrote me, and if you're just tuning in, he wrote me that I didn't know biblical cosmology because I'm interpreting the Bible improperly because the Bible seems to say that the earth is flat. And uh, he has a number of passages here that the sun moves, not the earth. Not only that the earth is flat, but the sun goes around it. Let's just deal with the sun moving, not the earth. He has a number of passages here. And of course, one of the passages he quotes is Jeremiah, not Jeremiah, sorry, Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. Now... 
Now, let's stop here for a second. What's the situation here in Jeremiah? I keep saying Jeremiah. I mean Joshua. <laughs> well, the situation is there's a battle going on. It's an historical narrative here. Um, and there's a battle, and apparently Joshua needs some extra time to uh, defeat the Amorites. And so he asked the sun to stand still. And here's what the passage says. On the day the Lord God gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. All right. Well, does that mean that the sun was moving and the... Joshua's command on the face of it appears to have stopped the sun, that it stood still. That's what the text seems to say, right? So shouldn't we just assume that the sun goes around the earth rather than the earth going around the sun? I mean, this led to a big controversy in in Galileo's time, right? Because this this is what the Bible says. The sun rises, the sun sets, and a common sense interpretation of reality would would seem to agree with that. It does appear that the sun rises and the sun sets. Well, what do we say to that? Well, first of all, the Bible is not a technical scientific textbook. When it describes natural phenomenon, it does so in a way that we do today, with common sense observational language. I mean, we do this today even though we're in a modern scientific age. When the Bible was written, at this time it was pre-scientific. Today, we are in the scientific age. It's not unscientific to say that the sun rises and the sun sets. It's just pre-scientific. But even in today's modern age, we use the same language. We say sunrise and sunset. In fact, if you watch the news tonight and you see the meteorologist, he's going to say sunrise tomorrow at 617. He's not going to say earth rotation will become apparent at 617. He's going to use observational language, and that's what the Bible does. It uses common sense observational language. If it, had been, if, it had been, if it used other language at the time, in the pre-scientific age, most people would have thought the Bible was false because it doesn't appear that the earth is moving. It appears that the sun is moving. It's using observational language. And so many of the other texts this gentleman emailed me are just a misunderstanding of either what we're talking about here, the common sense observational language, or he's misunderstanding the situation, the type of literature. Think about all the quotes I gave you earlier from the Dake Annotated Reference Bible. They're all from the Psalms, or most of them were anyway. These are, the Psalms are poetry. They're, they're using metaphors to communicate a literal truth that God hides us under his wings. It doesn't mean that he literally has wings. It's a strong way of saying God protects us. That's a better way of communicating it than just saying God protects us. So if you stopped and looked at the situation, the type of literature, the object of the passage, and whether this is prescriptive or descriptive, you'd be able to understand that this is a metaphor and it's not meant to be taken literally. Also, the gentleman who wrote me the email has a misunderstanding of 
revelation. He thinks you get all your revelation directly from the Bible. That's not true. You couldn't get any revelation from the Bible unless you already knew God's pre-existing revelation, natural revelation, general revelation. You couldn't know anything in the Bible unless you knew what I mentioned earlier, that your senses are reliable, the laws of logic, that cause and effect is consistent throughout history, that the definition of words are what they are and how they apply to things in reality. You couldn't learn anything from the Bible unless you knew language and grammar and literary style and moral principles and historical context and the ability to follow an argument. So while you may feel better saying to yourself, I'm just going with what the Bible says, I I submit to you, you don't even know what the Bible says. You're using a wrong hermeneutic to try and come up with a conclusion that violates God's other revelation. What's God's other revelation? Natural revelation. Yet generally, we take the Bible as the authority when it comes to a conflict between natural and special revelation, but sometimes it's natural revelation which helps us understand what specific special revelation means, like astronomy, when we know it's the sun that isn't moving, it's us. And then we say, well, the Bible is just using observational language then, just like we do today. So I submit to you, the gentleman that sent me this, it's, you, you need to understand how to interpret the Bible before you try and take every single thing in the Bible in a wooden, literal way. We don't even do that today when we speak. When I say my computer cost me an arm and a leg, you know that's a metaphor. You don't think I'm a double amputee. And the same thing is true with so many of these other scriptures that you sent me. So look those up. All right, friends. Great being with you. We couldn't cover the whole topic of how to interpret the Bible, but I hope you understand that there are things you need to know before you can understand the Bible. All right, I'm Frank Turk. Great being with you. Don't forget March 18th, Memphis, Tennessee. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. University of Memphis, see you there. And Gary Habermas's course, sign up for it now. See ya. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross-examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless.